I imagine that things might be different in the streaming era where there were constantly a million different options, but back in the VHS days, it was common for kids to watch and rewatch the same battered tape over and over <laughs> and over again. And since Disney is the most prominent producer of animated children's films, even their D-list material was widely distributed on home video. That means that each and every Disney film, no matter how obscure, is the favorite of thousands. Back in my DVNR days, I came across somebody who was weirdly obsessed with Treasure Planet, a solid candidate for least beloved Disney film. Yeah, uh, she had slash fiction involving Long John Silver. And Jim, probably. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, well I'm looking to go into that, but yes, the yeah. Tart phase. <laughs> yeah, the period between The Jungle Book in 1967 and A Little Mermaid in 1989 is, by most accounts, the nadir of Disney's influence as a filmmaking institution. There is a notable decline in animation quality and very few commercial successes during this period. There were even moments when Disney considered shutting down its animated film division, which is an unthinkable prospect these days. The Rescuers is one of the few hits the studio produced during this period. It is also Rachel's favorite Disney film, which is why we're covering it. Oh, it's not my favorite. That would be Beauty and the Beast, but it was definitely one of my favorites, and that's why I picked it. And also, as Ryan mentioned earlier, D-list Disney movie. Like, you don't see Bianca and Bernard toys, or I guess maybe not so much com compared to, like, other D-list Disney films, like the aforementioned Treasure Planet. Well, that's another thing I was about to touch upon. Lots of people, including Disney, unfairly overlooked this film. Because whenever Disney put it out on uh, home video again, they always underproduced. And there ended up being more demand than they anticipated. The Rescuers is actually maybe a B-list Disney movie. But they treat it like a D-list. Yeah, I mean, I really like it. And I own a physical copy of this. So we did not watch this on Disney+. Plus. <laughs> so yeah, this is The Rescuers. My name is Ryan. This is a real deep dive. And I'm Rachel back again. Okay, well, we got most of the preliminaries out of the mm -hmm. way. This is one of your Disney tapes that you rewatched re over and over yeah, again as you were growing uh, up. Yeah, I remember watching the second one, which maybe will get its own episode sometime. I don't know. The rest is down under, but this is the one that I liked better, and I watched it a lot because I liked Penny, the little girl, and I like Miss Bianca, and Madame Medusa is a really well-designed Disney villain. Yeah, more on that later. Yeah. <laughs> but first, the plot recap. Mm -hmm. Our setting is an abandoned riverboat in Devil's Bayou, Louisiana. We see a young orphan named Penny dropping a message in a bottle containing a plea for help. Then we have the opening credits, which is a bunch of uh, background paintings as a song plays. It's really pretty, honestly. I like it. It's a good opening. The bottle washes up in New York City and is found by the Rescue Aid Society, an international mouse organization <laughs> headquartered inside the UN building. Inside a old... Uh, traveling trunk and there are little mice representing from all over the world some of the representation is, is good and cute and other is just kind of like ooh yeah this was definitely made in the 70s wasn't it yeah there's an Austrian <laughs> mouse and also a mouse from Vienna also one mouse is Africa all of it <laughs> Like, she's really cute, but she's from Africa, which is like, mm, you can, like, make her be from, I don't know, Kenya or Ghana, Mozambique, some, like, actual country. While researching this episode, I came across uh, this Arabic film critic who goes through film history and comments upon how the Arabic culture is depicted. And he's like, Rescuer is not bad. I was expecting worse. 
Yes, a uh, Hungarian representative, Miss Bianca, volunteers to help Penny and chooses the stammering janitor, Bernard, as her partner. The duo visit Morningside Orphanage, as indicated on the note, where Penny once lived. An old cat named Rufus tells them that a woman named Madame Medusa tried to lure Penny into her car one time. And that leads them to suspect that they'll find more about Penny if they visit Medusa's pawn shop one street over. There, they discover, through overhearing a phone call, that she and her partner, Mr. Snoops, are feverishly <laughs> searching for the Devil's Eye, the world's largest diamond. You see, they kidnap Penny, had taken her down to Devil's Bayou, and keep her under the guard of two trained alligators named Brutus and Nero. They're, like, really fat alligators, too. They're really funny. We laughed a lot at their antics. <laughs> Particularly the bit with the pipe organ. That, yeah, was that was poetry. With the help of an albatross named Orville and a dragonfly named Even Rude, the mice follow Medusa to her hideout. There they find that Medusa plans to force Penny to enter a small hole leading to a pirate's cave where the devil's eye is located. She's supposed to forge around with it, and she is apparently the only child in the United States who can fit in that hole. Well, That's why they needed to kidnap her in New York and drag her down. Yeah, I mean, they also kidnapped her because she's an orphan. Yeah, 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 there aren't any orphans in the South. And there's no mechanical means for them to widen that hole. You know, I I think it was a crime of opportunity. Madame Medusa was like, she's perfect. She's an orphan. No one will miss her. Grabs her, sends her down south. Yeah, she doesn't really think things through, really. No, I remember. This is a movie about talking mice, so your logic is not helpful here. (laughs) No, 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 no. Screw that. Even if the mice are talking, they still need to live in a world that feels honest. Okay, well, I think it feels honest that Madame Medusa is, like, this ridiculous-looking woman will steal a small six-year-old girl because she'll fit in a little hole. Yeah, yeah, don't give me that talking mice cop-out, yeah. yeah. I will not give you the talking mice cop-out. But I think it's also really heavily implied that they can only go into the cave for a very brief amount of time before the water flows in. So I think that maybe blowing it up would just make things worse. And I can imagine trying to go underwater, you know, snorkeling while the flies and gators. Yeah, they could have hired a shifty little person. Yeah, <laughs> orphan. Anyway. Bernard and Bianca find Penny and devise an escape plan. They send Even Rude to get the assistance of the local critters, who despise <laughs> Medusa and would eagerly comply. They basically evinced uh, as much earlier. Yeah, they're basically like a bunch of small hillbilly animals amusing stereotypes, except for the one that aged poorly with his turtle wearing a confederate cap, and we're like, ooh. <laughs> Yeah, they don't comment on it. He's, yeah. just, he's just wearing on it because he's old. He probably fought in the war. I mean, yeah. The Civil War tortoise. had turtles in it. Yeah. I mean, yeah, he's he, a tortoise, though. Yeah, yeah, he's a tortoise. Sorry, he's a tortoise. We got into a whole debate if they were gators or, or crocodiles, so we need like, to clarify the, that he's a tortoise. Yeah, yeah, the teeth are visible <laughs> on their mouths even when they shut them. That's a gator thing. That's all not right, a croc yes, thing. Okay, all right. <laughs> Anyway. Even Root, however, is delayed by a swarm of bats. The next morning, Medusa and Mr. Snoop send Penny on her fetch quest. Bernard and Bianca hide in her skirt pocket and find the diamond in the eye of a skull. The tides begin to rise as they're trying to pry the diamonds loose, and the trio barely escape with their lives. After acquiring the diamond, Medusa goes back on her promise to give half of it to Mr. Snoops. Holding him and Penny at gunpoint, Medusa sews the diamond into uh, Penny's teddy bear. Her beloved teddy bear. And tries to slip away. However, she trips over a cable set as a trap by Bianca and Bernard. Penny grabs the bear in the confusion and runs off. Bruno and Nero come to the scene, but are trapped by the timely arrival of the local animals. 
You see, even Ruth had gotten loose from the bats, and you can tell the bats are bad news because even the alligators get like personality mannerisms. Those yeah. bats are just a force of nature that yeah, are there they, to eat bugs. They're not anthropomorphized one bit. I mean, the gator, gators are kind of goofy and chubby looking, and they play the piano too. Sorry, they play the pipe organ too. <laughs> The animals then set off Mr. Snoop's fireworks, sowing even more confusion. Penny and the mice commandeer Medusa's swampmobile, a makeshift airboat. Medusa pursues using Brutus and Nero as water skis after they bust loose from the fireworks. Yeah, you and I were like, but yeah, she uses the, them for like water skis. Because both of us hadn't really watched this movie in a very long time. We're like, oh yeah, we were right. We both did not separately hallucinate this. <laughs> Yeah, she fell spectacularly, left clinging to the riverboat's smokestacks as an irritated Brutus and Hero circler hungrily just turning on her. Mr. Snoops looks on in his makeshift lifeboat and laughs. <laughs> Back in New York City, the Rescue Aid Society watched a news report about how Penny found the Devil's Eye, got adopted, and then got Mr. Snoops and Medusa arrested. Uh, the <laughs> meeting is interrupted by Evenrude, who has a new case for Bianca and Bernard. Yeah, that's the movie. Next up, we're going to be delving into the development for this one, because this one had a long cycle, even by the standards of animated films. Disney first optioned the film in 1962. Yeah, that's a while. That's like 15 years before it even came out. Yeah, it's based on Marjorie Sharp's 1959 children's novel of the same name. The initial pitch hewed much closer to the source novel, focusing on thinly-veiled metaphors for Siberian gulags and Stalinism. Walt Disney disliked <laughs> the socio-political <laughs> undertones of the project and put it on ice. Uh, okay. <laughs> the Rescuers as a movie pitch was revived in the early 1970s by some of Disney's younger animators, most notably Don Bluth. They focused more on the second book in the series, entitled Miss Bianca and the Antarctic. That was the most recent book at the time, although she did write more after the uh, movie came out. The endangered figure in that novel, in addition to an imprisoned poet, was a polar bear who was captured and forced to perform at circus-like shows. That sounds very Stalinism to me. Yeah. <laughs> Louis Prima, fresh off his star turn in the Jungle Book, was cast as the bear. He was to sing six songs and have a comedic sidekick who was a lion voiced by Red Fox. In 1975, Prima entered a terminal coma and Disney scrapped their plans. Oh. Following the completion of Robin Hood in 1973, The Rescuers was greenlit for production. We need more talking, singing animals. The studio vetoed Antarctica as a setting, expressing that the stark whiteness would be dull for background shots. Yeah, that is kind of true, though. Early stages of the project had Cruella de Vil briefly considered as the movie's antagonist. I mean, it makes sense because in this era of Disney, there's a lot of recycled animation. And you and I were commenting on some of the scenes of Madame Medusa driving. We're like, yeah, she goes to the, the Cruella de Vil school of driving. And she kind of, like moves similarly to her. Ultimately, directing animator Ollie Johnston shot that idea down in favor of just developing a new villain. He didn't like the idea of them having a pseudo-sequel to 101 Dalmatians because Disney animated films don't have sequels. That's not proper. <laughs> yeah, well, we all know Slow how that... lightning strike. Yeah, we all know how that turned out. And besides, it would have been kind of weird to have a woman who's obsessed with turning puppies into a jacket. Although, honestly, to have Cruella 
Deville suddenly be interested in a diamond instead of doing something that's a little more obviously criminal because Cruella Deville, she's also rich as fuck. Madame Medusa is broke. That's why she kidnaps a small child. The antagonist in the uh, Miss Bianca novel was called the Diamond Duchess and she was modified into Madame Medusa. Animator Milt Call based her on his wife, Phyllis Bounds, Walt Disney's niece, whom he would soon divorce. Um, is it because as fun as Madame Medusa is to watch, it is not a very flattering caricature? Yeah, Call, knowing that this was going to be his last Disney film, animated Medusa without any assistance. Every scene is drawn by one guy, and he wanted her to be his best Disney character. I mean, she is. She moves really well. She has this very animated hands. She's like... Ooh, wiggling her long fingernails around as she, you know, I, the one scene that always stood out to me as a kid is when Madame Medusa takes her makeup off at the end of the day and she's like pulling her falsies off. And I remember being like, wow, that's, that, that's really creepy. <laughs> <laughs> Penny was based on Patience, a sympathetic orphan in Miss Bianca. Mr. Snoops was similarly altered from Miss Bianca villain Mandrake. He is a caricature of animation historian John Culhane, who fanboyed real hard when he saw the finished film because they didn't tell him they were going to do that. Yeah, well, I mean, they're lucky that he didn't, like, do. (laughs) Apparently, when they were talking to him, they had him, like, surreptitiously do little poses without telling him what it was for. Oh, that's cute, Yeah, yeah, he's basically bouncing up and down (laughs) in his chair to be like, I'm a Disney henchman, I'm a Disney henchman. Good. Good for him. That's all I can say. The two alligators, Nero and Brutus, were modeled modeled after two bloodhounds in Miss Bianca named Tyrant and Torment. They basically act like bloodhounds, just big fat bloodhounds who can swim. They kind of waddle around with their big snouts. They're going, mm. They're even sniffing around yeah, looking for Yeah, they do. They try to eat Bianca and Bernard in, in a really funny scene where they play the pipe organ and try to catch the mouse. Just how determined they look. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Bernard and Bianca were initially written as married professional detectives who've been doing it for a while, but it was eventually decided that they'd be more interesting as novices who didn't really know each other too well. I think that makes sense, because then you get to kind of develop the characters more. I mean, I'm not against the idea of having, like, you know, long-term couples be characters, because honestly, that's what real life is like. But I think it's kind of cute watching them kind of learn to trust each other and team up. You know, Bianca is definitely the go-getter of the two, even though Bernard is so, like, gentle and very, like, I got this. And there are nice little quiet moments between them, yeah, like, you know, when they're flying over to Louisiana, and she just sort of nuzzles up to him, and he doesn't quite yeah. know what it means. That's very, that's a very it, sweet scene. It is. It, honestly, it is. Like, he's kind of like a chubby, like, janitor, and she's basically Jackie O as a mouse. Even Rude was a minor background player at first, but was given a more prominent role when the animators decided it was really funny to have Even Rude express frustration or tiredness by buzzing loudly. It's cute. He's, he also kind of <laughs> a, a carrier pigeon was going to serve as the mice's transport at first, but Ollie Johnston suggested an albatross since the birds take off and land in an ungainly looking fashion, which he believed had comedic potential. Yes, uh, Wilbur is pretty funny. He kind of waddles. He kind of reminds me a bit of, God, what's the name 
with the bird from The Little Mermaid? Scuttle. Scuttle. Okay, for something, I thought that that was the fish. Jesus, Scuttle must have watched The Little Mermaid. And on yeah. the albatross in this is Orville. Yeah. Oh, Orville. Yeah, Wil it? Wilbur's in the sequel. Okay, yeah. Maybe They're both named after the Wright brothers. I mean, also, I play a lot of Animal Crossing, and the <laughs> dodos that run the airline Animal Crossing are named Wilbur and Orville, so it's a very common joke. Yeah, like every Disney film since 101 Dalmatians in 1961, The Rescuers was animated uh, with the relatively cheap process known as xerography. This allowed animators to reproduce cells without liquid chemicals in the transfer process. However, in order to get the black line work on, the transfer would often take the pencils with it, which resulted in a rougher, sketchier-looking vibe in Disney films from that period, uh, the sword in this tone probably being the most flagrant. Oh, yeah, I, I think it's also very obvious in the Aristocats, but at least in the Aristocats, it feels more like a stylistic choice than just an error. Yeah, they're trying to lean into it, I think, a little more. Yeah. But uh, Don Bluth, I mean, that sort of thing was driving him up the wall, unsurprisingly, <laughs> if you know anything about him as an animator. Yeah. So he tried to clean it up significantly, and his innovation into that was instead of using black ink, they used the medium gray. So when they Xeroxed the images, far fewer of the pencils showed up. So while the backgrounds in this film are gorgeous, as they usually are in Disney films, the animation in front, for the most part, looks pretty good if you train your eyes on it there there are some bits that are a little scruffier than the yeah, others all but the, all of the madame medusa stuff but it actually makes sense if it was one guy doing all of that animation but yeah but like 1970s disney standards this is their best looking movie I, i'll go with that don bluth would later used colored xerography in the secret of nim a few years after this that actually makes a lot of sense. I haven't watched The Secret of Nim in a very long time. I did it recently for an episode of the show with Cheryl. Oh, yay! All right, I'll have to listen to that then. Can we just take a brief moment to talk about how um, a lot of people will like, mistakenly think that Anastasia is a Disney princess? It is Bluth trying to do a Disney formula. Exactly, but guess what? Anastasia is on Disney Plus now. All right, because yeah. they bought out Fox. I know. Oh, if I was Don Bluth, I'd be pissed. Yeah. Okay. We want to. And here's a small brief tangent. I was not allowed to watch Anastasia when it came out because my parents thought it was in poor taste to make an animated Disney quote unquote movie about a real world tragedy. <laughs> Yikes! They're holding a grudge. <laughs> I mean, they probably will deny it, but I remember asking to go see it and being told no. My mom took me to see Mouse Hunt instead, which I think is a far more uh, age-inappropriate movie than Anastasia. That should be its own episode. All right, speaking of Bluth, this is the only Disney film in which Don Bluth was a directing animator rather than an assistant. It is also the last Disney film where any of the nine old men were involved, Carl Johnston, who I've mentioned before, and also Frank Thomas. It was also the debut for Glenn Keane, Ron Clements, and Andy Gaskill, animators who would later work on The Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, various other Renaissance films. This is very much a transitional movie. It is, especially once you pointed that out. And unlike some other, like, 70s Disney animated movies, this one is really good. Like, it's actually a very good movie. It has a strong plot. It's funny. The animation is beautiful. Like, the backgrounds are amazing, especially the opening and some of the scenes of New York City at, you know, 
dusk or in the morning. I think the main reason why the rescuers is a cut above, say, Robin Hood or the Fox and the Hound is, I mean, partially because it's the last hurrah for three of the nine old men and they all wanted to go out on a good note. Mm -hmm. Also, you know, the younger animators are coming on, they had something to prove, and that often brings out very good work out of people. But a good chunk of that is from Bluth, and Bluth just caring more than most Disney animating directors during this period. And speaking of which, Don Bluth was vexed by the fact that for most of the movie, the mice do not have the whites of their eyes filled out. Yeah, it's very noticeable when they do, because then you and I are like, oh, he's got, he's got white eyes! When he pointed this out to Disney executives, Bluth was told that filling in the eyes was too expensive. When he did some research and came back with a cost-effective way to fix the issue, Bluth was told to shut up and fall follow orders. That's very Disney of them. Bluth cites this interaction as the straw that broke the camel's back. About two years later, he would leave Disney for good to found his own animation studio, Blackjack and Hookers. <laughs> you know, maybe we need to do our own, like, little Don Bluth episodes more than Secret of Noon. What about, like, all, um, all dogs go to heaven, Anastasia, Thumbelina. Like, I didn't, like, watch his animated movies as religiously as some other people I know. Like, my one of my uh, best friends there movies is Thumbelina. Who's going to be mad that I said that on this show? <laughs> I'm a little embarrassed about it now. Oh, I'm definitely down yeah. for more Bluth episodes. All right, yeah, Don Bluth. Uh, music for this film. The Carpenters were approached to write songs for the rescuers, but declined due to scheduling conflicts. Karen Carpenter was reportedly very disappointed by this. She's a big Disney fan, which I'm not surprised to learn the least. In lieu of that, Carol Connors and Ann Robbins were brought on to compose the songs, which they feel an awful lot like Carpenter yeah, songs. Yeah, basically the Carpenters with the serial numbers filed off. Yeah, they were performed by Shelby Flint, who, uh, all of those people, I'm not too familiar with them, but they had a couple of, like, top 40 hits in the early 60s. The Rescuers is the first Disney film since Bambi, where the songs aren't, like, non-diegetic musical theater numbers, and while they aren't diegetic, they're just directly commenting on the action mm -hmm. of the film happening as it's occurring. I think this one, the music is pretty good. Uh, I think the songs are okay, but I forgot that there were songs in The yeah, Rescuers. Yeah, yeah, but also, haven't you watched it since you were a child? I mean, there are plenty of Disney movies that I haven't watched in years, but those songs are tattooed in my brain and they're never leaving. That is not the case with The Rescuer songs. I guess so. I mean, I kind of remember, but also, I haven't watched this in like 10 years. Even though it's been, as much as I love The Rescuers, it's been a while. All right, let's talk about the cast of this. First off, let's say Bob Newhart is Bernard. While reading this, I found that Walter Matthau was considered for Bernard for a bit, and that would have been a very different movie. Yeah, he would have been a little bit more grumpy. Not only that, but just Bernard's character is very, very clearly based on Newhart's comedic persona. <laughs> you know, the stammering, the superstition, the fear of flying. Newhart is often pointed out as like one of the most understated masters of comedic timing because he's always like hesitating and tripping over his own words. But when you listen, it has a rhythm to it. And I keep forgetting how funny he is. <laughs> Like, not only in this film, where he gets a couple of really good lines in, yeah. but even, like, early, uh, like, button-down mind of Bob Newhart stuff, where it's just, like, him talking to the phone, and you only hear his side of the conversation, and nothing ages more poorly than comedy between generations. It's hard to 
remember why people thought like certain jokes from a hundred years ago were funny, but most of the new hard stuff still works. And the yeah. phone bits are ma- make me think of the president's conversations and Doctor Strange love, just which also hold up very well. I thought he was like. He's like, yes, yes, Nikolai. I, I'm happy to be talking to you, too. <laughs> oh, yeah. Newhart is one of the rescuers' uh, secret weapons. He's fantastic <laughs> in this. Uh, also, uh, Ava Gabor is Bianca. Up until yesterday, I, I could have sworn that Zsa Zsa Gabor was... Yeah, I thought that it was Zsa Zsa Gabor here, and then Eva Gabor was Duchess in uh, the Aristocats. But no, they're both Eva Gabor, right? I confirmed it. I, I, yeah, yeah, according to IMDb, Wikipedia, a couple of Disney wikis, the back of the box. <laughs> um, I'm guessing this came after the Aristocats, though. Yes, it was. Okay. You have to be a mouth and a cat. And like Newhart, <laughs> Bianca does pick up little bits of Ava Gabor's screen persona, particularly yeah. the bits with the luggage. With the luggage. She's very elegant. She's a lady. And they make her the Hungarian mouse yeah, because she actually of is. She's got a little fuzzy pillbox hat. She wears perfume. She's carrying her purse the entire time. She's very, you know, active, which we'll talk about more later. Yeah, I should note that Bianca in the film is a lot more resourceful, adaptive, knowledgeable, and independent than her counterpart in the book. That doesn't surprise me. I mean, she is a very active character. I think that's one of the reasons why I was so drawn to this movie is that even as like a little kid, I was attracted to all of the female characters who really were characters who were active and did stuff. That's why I liked Penny a lot as a kid. I still like Bianca. That's why I was obsessed with Captain Janeway and Miss Piggy. Bernard will charge at the situation, but he feels put upon while he's doing it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Bianca's like, let's get him. She's like, let's get him, darling. He's just one thing he has to do. <laughs> Okay, then we have Geraldine Page as Madame oh, Medusa. Yes, she's so fun. She rolls her R's like a real villain. She's like, snoops! Yeah, according to Call, Page nailed all of her lines on the first take. I mean, yeah, you know, it, they probably were just like, can you, you know, I don't need to do it again and make it even hammier. She's already hammy. As we mentioned before, she took some strains from uh, Cruella de Vil, and this was almost Cruella de Vil. Yeah. Uh, however, animators who worked on The Little Mermaid considered Medusa a source of inspiration for Ursula, the mm-hmm. second most important after Divine. Yeah, but to be like, we, can't, we have to mention Divine. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, if, you know, Divine definitely provides, like, the shape and the eye makeup, but I think Madame Medusa and Ursula move in a very similar way. Also, uh, animators on Tangled cited Medusa as an influence on Mother Gothel. Yeah, because remember, Medusa is trying to be nice and manipulate and, like, basically meg Penny into doing what she wants. I I do think that Mother Gothel also moves about in a way that's similar uh, to Medusa as well. She's got the nails. She has the nails. She's got the fingers. The next voice actress of bringing up is Michelle Stacy as Penny. You did mention that uh, Penny's a little more assertive than uh, most figures in distress in Disney films. Yeah. Like, she keeps trying to break out on her own. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the mice probably couldn't have done it on her own if she didn't have the gumption, too. Yeah, she's the one that she's throwing bottles into the ocean to hope that somebody will come and rescue her. And, like, she's trying to escape on her own and braving the fact that she's in the middle of a womp and there's two giant gators who carry her back 
to the paddle boat every time. Most of the detractors I've encountered while looking into the rescuers, largely their annoyance is based on their belief that Penny is a little too twee and precious, which I can see where they're coming from, yeah. but I was willing to let it go. Yeah, I mean, I also, when I watched it a lot, I was Penny's age, so I was like, I'm never in trouble, I can be like Penny, you know? <laughs> <laughs> All right, we have Joe Flynn as Mr. Snoops. No, <laughs> sorry. I said that before you commented on the fact that he's like a, a caricature of a, a Disney historian, I said that he looked like a combination of Hurley and Larry from the Three Stooges. Yeah, and he also kind of has, I was expecting him to be like really loud and flamboyant in like a Dom DeLuise way, but he's kind of like twitchy and understated and nebbish. Yeah, I mean, he, he's, you know, he gets outsmarted by a six-year-old girl and threatened by the big fat gators. Like, she's like, I'm not afraid of them like you are. And they're like, hey. <laughs> <laughs> What's interesting is that those alligators, even though they very much want to eat everyone's flesh. Yes. They're very seldom all that scary. They're no. they're usually pretty funny. Yeah, they are funny because they waddle. Because they're fat, like they're chubby. <laughs> Big chubby gators. Right, then we have Jim Jordan as Oroville. Mm -hmm. Milton Burl, Donald O'Connor, Elvis Presley, and Burt Reynolds were all considered for this character. Is it bad that my brain was like Elvis was alive for this? Not for much longer, okay. but yeah. <laughs> This wound up being Jordan's last performance. He had a very long resume dating back to like vaudeville. He passed away shortly before The Rescuers Down Under was made. And that is why in that film, there's an albatross brother named Wilbur who was voiced by John Candy. See, the fact that John Candy is in it because I do actually kind of really want to rewatch The Rescuers Down Under because of that? Because I really don't remember it that well. All I remember is that I didn't like it as much as the first one. Jordan's performance in this, it's a minor character. He only has really one major scene, but... Memorable. Yeah, it, it really is. And ways he's just sort of like cursing out Bernard as he's trying to land and gets really defensive when people call his takeoffs clumsy and ungainly. <laughs> it's fun watching him move around. Yeah, it's a nice little bit. And he's a bird. Yeah, in the source novel, Bianca gets around on the toy boat. Mm hmm. The, the Disney people didn't want them to use any, like, human means of conveyance to help them along their way. They want, they all wanted it all to be, like, in-house. And also it gave them an excuse to design more goofy animal characters. Which is why we're here. All right, next up, John McIntyre is Rufus. Another character who gets only one scene, but it's a memorable one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is the last character who was designed by Johnston. And he's paid special attention to the flashback sequence where Penny is, you know, getting cheered up by Rufus. He's just a funny old man cat, and he kind of reminds me of my own funny old man cat, so I was enjoying the scene a little bit more. <laughs> yeah, the, the whole aspect of that scene is trust, because Bianca is just not the least bit threatened by this cat, who yeah. is her natural predator. Yeah, it's and he's just he, like, like, he finds him in the box, and they're like, a cat! And he's like, mice! And he's like... He's like, I'll, I'll lose my job if they find out that there are mice in here. He's, he's like old. He has a mustache and a mm -hmm. pince nez, you know? I'm too old to chase mice around. Go away. <laughs> But yeah, the scene uh, when Rufus is cheering up Penny because she's sad because she didn't get adopted again. There's a part at the very end where she just sort of like awkwardly picks him up and is like holding him by the neck and is clearly uncomfortable. But Rufus loves Penny too much to complain to her. And Johnson considered that very important in illustrating Penny's character. It was really cute. <laughs> And McIntyre does a very nice job with the stock role as old man cat. Yeah, old man cat indeed. 
All right, then we have James McDonald for Even Rude. McDonald has a very lengthy resume. He was the head of Disney Sound Department for a while. He's very good at animal noises. In Winnie the Pooh shorts, he's the bees. Uh, he voiced Mickey for a very long stretch. And he gets to like kind of, mm, and he goes, and he you know, gets tired and runs out of steam. <laughs> Yeah, it's a, it's a minor part. I'm guessing he didn't have to go out of his way too far to uh, to be even rude, but it contributes a lot. And yeah, they expanded the character just to suit him. Oh, uh, I forgot to mention, before they settled on Eva Gabor's Bianca, Fay Ray, Bernadette Peters, and Margot Kidder were all considered. Once again, very different film if any of them had, had yeah, put in instead of Gabor. Uh, the release and reception of this film. It was initially put on a double bill with A Tale of Two Critters in 1977. It What's was, The Tale of Two Critters? Uh, some live-action Disney animal film. Oh, okay. Yeah, the first run made $48 million off a $7.5 million budget. A yeah, very healthy profit for Disney during that period. Uh, it was very well received. It outgrossed Star Wars in both France and Germany. Because, yeah... When people talk about 1977 in film, that kind of looms over all the other yes, ones. like Jaws and Star Wars. Yeah, it got re-released in 1983 alongside Mickey's Christmas Carol, and then got another theatrical release in 1989 shortly before The Rescuers Down Under came out. If you factor in the re-releases, The Rescuers made $169 million. That's pretty good for, you know, a B-list Disney movie during the not-Disney renaissance. Yes, particularly since it only got two re-releases. Yeah, if you look at, like, the top-grossing films of all time, there are a lot of Disney films in that. But it was largely because, like, every five years they just put the movie in theaters again. I was kind of surprised they stopped doing that. I mean, I remember before Toy Story 3 came out, my family and I went to a double feature of... The first two Toy Story movies as like a special occasion had like trivia and intermission, a special preview. Yeah, they still do it on occasion, but it was far more prevalent before home video was a commonplace phenomenon. Yeah, I remember before, right before uh, Disney bought Star Wars, they were going to be re-releasing them in 3D, and they only they were going to do it in like once a year in chronological order. And but before Disney snatched them all up, they only were able to re-release the Phantom Menace in 3D. Yeah, it sounds like something Disney would do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, overall, the, the Rescuers got very good notices. Most of the contemporary reviews I came across cited it as the first good Disney film released since Walt Disney's death. That's Ten years of bad movies. <laughs> well, I have a soft spot for Robin Hood and some of the other ones, but yeah, there's there's a sharp dip. I can't say there isn't. Detractors, notably Gene Siskel, saw The Rescuers as a very minor film and contrasted against something like Pinocchio or Snow White, but still superior to most of The Rescuers' most immediate predecessors. What were some of the immediate predecessors? I mean, the one right before was Robin Hood. Okay. And, uh, yeah, the Aristocats is another one. I really like the Aristocats, though. I feel like that's been elevated to A-list Disney. Yeah, by your perspective, I I, I think it's a B-list at most. Yeah. Didn't get much awards attention. Someone's Watching You got an Oscar nomination for Best Song. It lost to You Light Up My Life, which is the title song of the film of the same name. I don't even heard of that movie. I think you can skip it. During the film's various VHS re-releases, there was a scandal over some nudity. <laughs> like many other Disney films, a cheeky animator snuck a saucy image into the background. In this case, a blurry depiction of a topless woman 
is briefly visible in non-consecutive frames during the scene where Bernard and Bianca are flying with Orville. Did you notice it on my DVD? I bet the Disney Plus version was like, no, every version since 1999 doesn't have it. Oh, all right, yeah, I guess that's true. But yeah, it was one of those you have to pause at the exact right moments. If you do a Google image search, you'll see it. Disney recalled 3.4 million videotapes in 1999, three days after the film's second home video release, because somebody spotted it. Oh, I gotta ruin it for everybody. As we mentioned already, The Rescuers is the first Disney animated film to have a sequel. This was maybe the second or third film that I saw in theaters. Uh, the Down Under? Yeah, The Rescuers Down Under in 1990. Mm-hmm. I have very vague memories of this. I only remember a couple of scenes. I haven't seen it since I was a little kid. You didn't like it as much as The Rescuers. I'm guessing it's not as good as The Rescuers. Uh, I mean, I honestly don't know because I don't have any concrete memories of it besides some very vague ones involving the poacher and the eagle. I mean, I'm down for doing an episode on the rescuers down under just to have just for an excuse for us to watch it again. Why not? We we can do it uh, a fast version. I mean, I don't really remember it as, as much, and I was not born when it came out, so I must have watched it on like VHS, and then I was probably like, I don't want to watch this one again. Can we get the rescuers down under on VHS? Again, from the, library. <laughs> the 1983 re-release was successful to the point where Disney considered doing a Rescuers TV show. That would have been cute. However, when the Rescuers Down Under was greenlit as a film, they decided to retool the pitch. And since Bernard and Bianca weren't available, they were like, hey, what about those two chipmunks that screwed with Donald Duck? <laughs> and eventually it became Chippendale Rescue Rangers. Mm-hmm. All right, and with that out of the way, let's start talking about themes. This is a slight film, but I was able to find something to talk about. I definitely would say it's self-reliance is a theme of this. Oh, most definitely. Ties into something I want to talk about in The the Rescuers being the first Disney film to be a straight-up action-adventure spectacle. Oh, yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, if you look at any preceding Disney film, you know, there's lots of jaunty song and dance stuff. There's, like, romantic subplots. And, yeah, there's some flirting between Bianca and, and Bernard, but it's not the point at all. It's mostly moving things from one slapsticky action set piece to the other. And even though Disney first rejected the pitch in 1962 for having too much espionage, this still very much feels like a spy movie. Yeah, I also been like, why don't you guys want to capitalize on James Bond? Yeah, this is, kids. Yeah, this is basically a talking mouse James Bond film. Cause, yeah, yeah well, except the, in this case, the, the James Bond woman. Yeah, yeah, there are chase sequences, escape sequences, sneaking around bits, lots of suspenseful parts where their characters aren't trying to be discovered, ad hoc gadgets. It's a Bond movie. Yeah, can't argue with that. And not only that, but also the globe trotting. Yeah, they go from New York all the way down to Louisiana. And I mean, I think up until The Princess and the Frog, this is the only movie, Disney movie, that really takes place in Louisiana. The sunken riverboat didn't give it away, which, out of all the various background shots, I thought that was the most lovely. Oh, yeah, lovely. I think it, it's a very cool set piece, for sure. One other theme I wanted to bring up was, since this is as good a time as any, the prevalence of orphans in children's stories. <laughs> Because, you know, Oliver Twist, The Secret Garden, Batman, Heidi, million other things. 
Well, it's easier for kids to have an adventure when there are no parents to supervise them. Yeah, it is a convenient plot device. And also, just like losing one's parents at a young age is an obvious, easily relatable terror for a young audience. Like, what are you going to do when they're gone? Yeah. And you can use it as a clear-cut metaphor for being alone in the world. A four-year-old will understand that. for sure. I mean, I watched Mufasa die as a small child and felt very sad. This is semi-related to the trope of children losing their parents and then being taken in by abusive or neglectful surrogate parents, which is, you know, seen in, say, Cinderella, Harry Potter, X-Men, so on yeah, and so forth. Yeah, and also, and, and, and we should point out that Medusa, she's on Team Medusa. She doesn't want to be mommy, you know. She, like Mother Gothel. She's on Team Medusa, the little penny. And lots of people who have written about this phenomenon who have uh, commented upon the dichotomy between the fear and the perverse anticipation. Because (laughs) if you lose your parents, that is liberating, as Rachel pointed out. Mm -hmm. That sets you up for wacky adventures and hijinks. Yeah. I remember, like, playing make-believe in my yard as as a little kid, and I was like, my parents are dead, now I need to go avenge their deaths. Okay, but here's the question. If you were good this evening, have your siblings with you or not? Usually. But also, sort of in The Rescuers, but the characters in the situation usually build a new family over the course of the story, which mm-hmm. reinforces how humans need to do that. Yeah. You know, it happens to everyone from the Teen Titans to the boxcar children. Yeah, I mean, honestly, though, a human pack bond is very strong. Like, we will pack bond to inanimate objects. This so- whole story about people who basically treat their Roombas like it's a pet. Yep, so if, a, <laughs> if Penny encounters two talking mice, they're they're her new family. Yeah, I mean, too bad they couldn't adopt her. I mean, it'd be kind of like, you know, the opposite of Stuart Little. Instead <laughs> of, like, humans adopting a mouse, it's a pair of mice adopting a girl. <laughs> yeah, Stuart Little, James Bond Disney film. <laughs> yeah. All right, well, that's everything I could think to write down. Um, is there anything uh, about the rescuers we haven't touched upon that you would like to mention before uh, we sign I off? I was surprised to realize that John Bluthis was involved. I didn't know that. But now, thinking about it, his fingerprints are all over this movie. Yeah, this does have that Don Bluth weirdness yeah. to it, where it's ostensibly a children's movie, but Bluth is clearly trying to entertain himself. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think there's like some movie Disney that I watched as a kid, or like just movies in general that I watched as a kid, and I rewatched them as an adult, and I'm like, you guys. But watching it, I'm like, oh, it's still good. I'm still enjoying myself. We were laughing and having a good time. So, yeah. Yeah, take a page from Bluth. Writing what you know is nice, but write what you want to read, or in this case, watch. Yeah, I strongly agree with that statement as a creative, but, um, no, I'm glad I picked this, and I'm glad we we did an episode on it. I felt like it... (laughs) Make an interesting one. Okay, so that's The Rescuers. See you next time. Thanks for listening. Bye.